And Jane, over the course of three years, had like six different jobs. We were all out to dinner, a bunch of friends, and Jane said, you know, I think I know why I keep changing jobs. We all sat and listened because we had our ideas as well, right? You have your ideas about what's going on. And Jane said, I think I keep expecting each place I work to be perfect. Jane was an activist, and she was working for these wonderful nonprofit organizations, one after the other, and she's an idealist. She expected that an organization that was set out to help children in this way would, you know, be perfect and always do the right thing. And then when something happened and she saw it was flawed, she started looking for the other job. And she went to that organization. And this organization, it should be perfect because what they're doing is so good and she'd get there, and after a couple of months, it would be imperfect and flawed, and she'd look for the next job. It took her several years and several jobs to figure out that no matter how wonderful the ideals of these organizations, they were being run by flawed human beings, like all organizations, and she had to figure out how to live within that. I share that story because many of us come to church a little bit like my friend Jane, expecting everything to be tidy and neat and nice, maybe even perfect at church. And then we get here, and we hear this text from Luke's Gospel, and it's not at all what we expect to be hearing in church, right? It doesn't really conform, perhaps, to some of our ideals about what we want when we come to church. What I want to do this morning is separate out this text into two parts, and I'm only going to focus on the first part, really. We've got the parable that Jesus gives the disciples. That's complex enough. We're going to look at that. And then we've got a collection of sayings that are perhaps loosely related, and Luke, who put this gospel together for us, put them right there thinking they would be helpful to us. I'm not sure that they are for me, so I'm going to just leave those for another day. In three years, when this text comes around again, maybe I'll look at the sayings instead of the parable. But the parable is just so strange, I want to focus on this parable. So let me retell it. I'm sure you were paying attention, but I'm going to retell it anyway so I can ad-lib. I can't ad-lib. I can change my voice and so forth, but I can't ad-lib while I'm proclaiming the gospel. I won't do it. So it goes like this. You've got this rich owner, this rich guy. Now, they're all men in the story because it's the ancient world and so forth. You've got this rich guy who's running some sort of operation, and he's got this manager who's been working for him for years, and he hears from somewhere that the manager is dishonest. So we don't see that he tries to figure out if that's true or not. He decides to believe the information he's gotten. Okay. And he goes to the dishonest manager, and he does what none of you would do if you had to fire an employee. He says, I'm going to fire you, so I need you to make an accounting of everything. No, 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 no. What happens today is they say, you know, it's about time for our audit, and I need you to get some things together. Or they do something else to get all the information. And then they come in after you hand it over and say, oh, and by the way, right, now you can go. Okay, so this is... Perhaps a little countercultural for us. So he knows he's going to be out of a job, and he's got to figure.
figure out how to give an accounting to his boss. And perhaps he has come to really care about the people he works with, the people that owe his boss things, the different providers of things. Perhaps he really cares about his boss and the other people he works with. We know that he cares about himself because he says, what the heck am I going to do? I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't just go out there and start digging trenches. In other words, I don't really have the skills they need in the workforce today. And I'm too ashamed to beg. I don't want to receive handouts. That doesn't really work for me. I'm kind of a man who's used to a certain level, right, of status. So he thinks and thinks and thinks, and he says, I've got it. I'll make friends with the debtors as I make the accounting for the boss. And by making friends with them, maybe they'll hire me. Maybe they'll introduce me to another person I can work for. He's beginning to network, if you will, right? So he calls in the olive oil jug guy, and he says, what do you owe? What do you owe? And he says, a hundred. And he's thinking, yeah, that's why you haven't paid it. It's so much, right? That's why you owe a hundred. It's like overwhelming, so let's make it 50. Olive oil jug guy is thrilled. He's just had this enormous debt drop to half. He can do 50. He can't do a hundred. He's thrilled, right? He probably leaves there, and maybe not knowing the situation with the dishonesty and the firing and all that, he probably goes out into the marketplace and says, you guys won't believe it, that rich guy I do business with is so generous. He just forgave half my debts. And the rich guy goes up in public standing, right? Wow, he's, he's rich and he's generous, right? Then a wheat guy comes in and he says, how much wheat do you owe? And he says, 100 containers. Make it 80. I don't know why he does 50 for one and 80 for another, other than maybe that made sense in Jesus' era in a way we can't understand. Or maybe Jesus wants us to understand that it's a little bit different from person to person. Things can be a little different and still be filled with grace. And wheat guy is thrilled. He goes from owing 100 to 80. I would take that deal. And he goes around the marketplace and says, this guy is really generous. He just cut a deal with me. I only owe 80 now. I can pay this and get out from under this debt. It feels great, right? I know that folks who have a lot of debtors would prefer cash in hand because my mother was a bill collector. And so she would talk to people on the phone. She hated to answer the phone when she got home from work. She was on the phone all day trying to get people to pay what they owed, mostly for medical things. And it's heartbreaking. She'd be on the phone with people who just don't have the money to pay, and she's trying to get the money, right? So I know one of her lines, her classic lines, is, well, well what can you afford, right? Well, what, you can't afford to pay the whole thing. What can you afford to pay? And then she'd work with people so that her boss would be happy and get some money in, cash in hand, and that person would be relieved of this burden of debt. Right? That was her job. So in this text, we've got the master hearing about what the dishonest manager is doing, the master, the rich guy. Perhaps he's walking through the marketplace, and people are saying, hey, we've heard about what you're doing with people. You really are a good guy. I am? I'm about to fire somebody. You think I'm a good guy? That must feel good, right? That must feel right to him. And so he goes home and he figures it all out and he says to the dishonest manager, I commend you for acting shrewdly, cleverly. Fascinating, right? 
I wonder, I wonder if this parable helps us understand something about what Jesus came into to save us. Jesus comes into this broken world with broken people and broken systems and broken governments and broken organizations. And within a broken system, Jesus is clever, right? And works with what's broken to make everyone flourish at the end of the story. The rich man flourishes because he's gone up in reputation. The olive oil guy is flourishing because he's got his debt settled. Same with the wheat guy. And the manager is flourishing because he's made all these happy connections that will help him in the future. Everybody in this parable flourishes. You with me? They flourish in some way. I believe that God desires that all human beings will experience flourishing in their lives. That what God wants for all of humanity is a kind of flourishing. Flourishing, human flourishing was a popular idea with all the philosophers in the ancient world. In fact, I want to share with you how Plato defined it for his disciples, his students, his followers. And Jesus, much in that tradition, is teaching people who are following him with this story. And here's what Plato defined as human flourishing. The word for it in Greek, which means a state of human flourishing, is eudaimonia. Eu, like euphoria, good. Daimon, which is demon or spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean demon like bad. It means spirit and state of being. So a human flourishing, a good state of being, good plus spirit. And Plato defined eudaimonia like this. The good that is combined and composed of all the goods, living well and virtuous, with resources sufficient for a living creature. Right? So living well, all the goods coming together so that somebody can live well and be virtuous, having all the resources that they need to live. That was the definition in the ancient world of human flourishing. And I believe that our parable today reveals something about God's desire for all of us to flourish, even though we are in a broken world. And we live and work within broken, imperfect, and flawed systems. So I think there's something in here that I learned that, I think this is being revealed because I've learned something from our trip with pilgrims to Seattle, the group that went to Honduras, the group that went to Kentucky to do work in Appalachia this summer. There's something we learn in these situations about how organizations are doing their best to contribute to human flourishing, even though those very organizations are not perfect, and they're not working in perfect circumstances, right? When you go to Honduras, and you see a bucket sitting in somebody's yard, and it's got a hole in it, You'll think to yourself, perhaps like I do, let's just throw that in their trash. Let's just clean up the yard and throw that in the trash. And then you realize perhaps somebody's hanging on to it because they're going to use it to cover something, right? Maybe an open pipe or maybe some flowers when the frost comes. But even though to me that bucket is broken, that's like a tool that is broken, to folks who are living with limited means, that is still a tool. It is an imperfect tool. But it's still a tool. You'll see this in Honduras. People can make things out of 
nothing. They can take the plastic off of their um, washing soap that goes around the label, the plastic label around the big bucket. They can cut it neatly and they can open it up. And if they do this time after time, they can have wallpaper, all bright colors of all of that that keeps the wind out of the wall, from blowing through the wall, the cracks in the wall, right? Big piece of plastic off that soap. Things that we would throw away become tools for human flourishing, if you're creative. And I believe that's what this parable is about, that we should not throw organizations and institutions away because they're broken, but hang on to them and say, what can we do even with this broken tool? Can we still use this broken organization, school, government, nation, church, family, whatever organization we are finding to be broken? Can God still work within this broken thing to manifest human flourishing? And this parable tells us, yes, God can do that. God can send Jesus so that all humans can flourish. 